The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians 3, 23-29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are in Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Mary Claire. Good morning, everybody. Uh, We are in the middle of our series on Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. This is a letter to the church that is sick. It's a sick church. And... Uh, It's sick because it has a syndrome, uh, not unlike Stockholm Syndrome. Have you ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? Uh, The term emerged in 1973 because of a bank robbery that took place in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, the people who were taken hostage by the bank robbers, while they were being held hostage, developed this strange affection for their captors, uh, for the ones who had made them hostages. And, and uh, after, you know, the bank robbers were caught by uh, the, the authorities and, and put into prison and they had a court case, the uh, people who had been hostages would not testify against their captors in court because they had developed such an affection for the people who captured them. And you know, the strange thing about this Stockholm Syndrome is that the people who have it are more enamored with their captors than they are with the people who set them free. And this is a very similar thing that Paul is addressing in uh, Galatia. And uh, if you're a friend or a family of, of a hostage, of somebody who's been taken captive, who falls in love with a person who, or a group of people who took them captive, of course you're going to say, wake up. They've taken your freedom. They put you in harm's way. They're using you. They've manipulated you. They brainwashed you somehow. Paul's doing the same thing. The robbers are the group that Paul refers to as the circumcision party. And he's saying to the whole church at Galatia, this circumcision party is robbing you of your freedom and you're buying it. And and you've gotten to the point actually where you prefer slavery over sonship and freedom. You know, this letter, if you've been here from the beginning, you might remember this. This letter starts out, it's one of the most aggressive beginnings of a letter in the Bible. Paul actually starts out with the words, I am astonished. I'm astonished that you all are so quickly deserting the grace that saves you 
for a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And, and about the captors, about those who are robbing everyone else of freedom, Paul says, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. I wish they'd dismember themselves so that they can't reproduce anymore. He's very bold. He's very upset. And in this letter, he, he portrays the way they're looking at the law of Moses, which is found in the earlier chapters of the Old Testament. He's, he's, he's portraying the way that they're treating the law of Moses as if they're looking to the law of Moses to be a guardian. That's the word he uses, which is Paul's word for a strict, demanding, impossibly mean, an unrelenting babysitter. You want a strict, mean babysitter to basically be your daddy. And he's saying there's something better for you. There's something more liberated. He, he talks here about how they are voluntarily putting themselves captive under the law and they're voluntarily imprisoned to a way of thinking and living but he says in verse 25, and this is sort of the central verse, now that faith has come, you are no longer, <coughs> you are no longer under this, this guardian. The law of God has done its job. The law of Moses has done its job. What is the job of the law of Moses? Fundamentally, to tell you how impossible it is for you to keep it. And out of that, to drive you toward Jesus Christ, who says, I've got freedom in exchange for the change you've been living in. And so what Paul is doing is he's opening the cell door. He's opening the prison door and he's showing us a world of freedom. And he says, that is a world in which you are meant to live. So let's go there. So there are gonna be three uh, headings we're going to explore this morning as we open the cell door and, and, and try to get over our own version of Stockholm Syndrome. We'll talk about the failure to launch, the failure to thrive. These are all things that are going on in the church then and in the churches now. And then lastly, the way out of Stockholm. So first, failure to launch. There were, there were believers then and there are millions of believers now who are stuck in the mindset of the circumcision party rabbis. So a little bit of biblical history. God gave Israel, the people of God, 10 commandments. 10 commandments are famous. If you don't know what they are, you, you've probably nonetheless heard of them. You can find them listed in the 20th chapter of Exodus and also the 5th chapter of Deut Deuteronomy, two of the books of Moses. And they go like this. <clears throat> the first four are you are to have no other gods before the true and living God. You are to make no images of him. In other words, don't make him a figment or a product of your own imagination. Worship him for who he actually is. Don't take his name in vain. And honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then there are six more commands that have to do with how we interact with other people. Honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. Now, Jesus took these 10 commands. He didn't do away with any of them, but he simplified the expression of them. He said they basically boil down to two. 
The first four of the ten are summarized in this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then the second greatest command right behind that is to love your neighbor as yourself, which relates to the last six of the Ten Commandments. And he says, Jesus says, all of the law, all of the prophets, everything in the Bible, everything God's ever said to the human race is summed up in those two commands. If you start there, all these other laws will sort of fall into place and take care of themselves in your life. Freedom. Jesus took the ten, distilled them down to two. The rabbis took the ten and expanded them into 613. The rabbis had 613 laws that they imposed on the people of God. They put laws around the laws. It started all the way back in the garden with Eve, and the serpent tempts Eve and, and, <coughs> and starts calling God into question. Did God really say that, that, that you're not to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did God really say that? And, and Eve says, yes, he said it, he did. He said, you shall not eat it and you shall not touch it. Thing is, God never said don't touch it. See, all the way back to the beginning, you've got people, human beings, adding to the law of God, imposing greater burdens than, than, than what God intends, both on themselves and on others. You know, one of the ways that, one of the 613 laws was this. If you spit on the Sabbath, you have disobeyed God. You have done a dishonorable thing. Why, why on earth would they say, don't spit on the Sabbath? When parents are saying to their kids, because it's rude to spit. Well, no, this is about something else. They said, you can't spit on the Sabbath because it's possible that your saliva is going to land uh, in fertile soil and make contact with a seed and germinate the seed on the day of rest, which means that will be work for you. That's how ridiculous it got. That's how granular the rabbis got and the circumcision party got. The focus was external on, on externals. If you behave, if you know the rules, keep your nose clean, then you're good. You're good with God, you'd be good with our community, and you can feel okay about yourself. So there's a, <coughs> there's a, a man, a young man described as a young rich man in the 19th chapter of Matthew, who approaches Jesus. And you can tell really early on he's in this same mindset. Because he says to him, teacher, if that's what you think Jesus is first and foremost is a teacher, you're already off on the wrong foot. Jesus is a savior. He's a healer. And out of his salvation and out of his healing, he teaches. But he's not a moral teacher first and foremost. He's a savior and a rescuer and a deliverer first and foremost. But he starts teacher and then he goes on and he says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Did you catch that? What do I need to do to inherit? What do I need to achieve and accomplish in order to get something that, that, that's supposed to come to people for free? An inheritance, right? You get an inheritance for free. It comes to you based on what somebody else has done and somebody else's generosity. And yet he's saying, surely there's a catch here. And Jesus says, okay, I love you enough to take you to the logical conclusion of the question that you're asking. I love you enough to press you. If you want to play by that game, 
that your goodness gets you the inheritance, then all you've got to do is keep all of the commandments. All of them. And the man, I, I think, naively says, well, Lord, all my life I've been keeping the commandments. And Jesus says, oh, there's this one thing. Your money, give it all up. That which you are known for, the rich young man, you know, the, the dot-com kid who dropped out of Harvard his sophomore year because he no longer needed college because he was a billionaire at age 19. Get rid of your identity. Throw it away. Pitch it. Be gone with it and come follow me. Let's start there. And it says the man said, oh, too much. Walked away sad. Walked away sad. The law is too much. It's too much to handle. You can't, you can't get your arms around it. You can't fit it in your pocket. I dare say you can't build your life and identity around it because it will crush you. See, the rich young man and, and, and the, the Judaizers or the circumcision party, they taught and they thought that religion fundamentally is a chore. It's a chore. Have you ever seen the movie Parenthood, Steve Martin is this stressed out father and he's having a stressed out conversation with his wife and he realizes it's time for him to leave to go do some duty that he has to do. And his wife says, do you have to leave? And he says, my whole life is have to. That's how the rabbis are presenting religion. Your whole life is have to. It's have to. Step up. Chesterton, whose thinking was more congruent with the thinking of Paul and Jesus, said, let your religion be less of a theory. Let it be less of a code of ethics. Let it be less of a theory and more of a love affair. When faith comes, you know, to use the language of Paul, when you start to grasp that it is love and not pressure that serves as the basis from which God relates to you and desires for you to relate to him. When you start to grasp that, obedience is no longer have to. It's no longer what good deed must I do but rather, what good deed do I get to do? See, this kind of faith that Paul is describing flows from Jeremiah chapter 31 when he, he forecasted this unveiling of what he called the new covenant, which is really just the fulfillment of what God has already put down in the Old Testament, where it says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. There will be this dynamic of belonging between us. They will say, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, and, and, and because of the love we have between us, my, my wish will become their command, but not only that, my command will become their wish because of the affection that will well up in them from within toward the love that set them free. The sign that, that you are moving out of Stockholm is that your faith is starting to become a source of enjoyment for you. It's actually part of that thing that you call happiness. 
your faith. It's not a chore. Failure to launch. It's a syndrome. It's living inside all of us. It's incubating. If you get the chicken pox once, you've always got it. And it can manifest later in life as shingles. They've got shingles. And Paul is trying to send those shingles into remission forever. Failure to launch (coughs) then leads to a failure to thrive. Stockholm Syndrome has symptoms. Half to religion has symptoms. It, it, It impacts those who adhere to it. And you're always fighting in two ways. You're always fighting against inferiority and you're always fighting for superiority if you have this syndrome. Let's start with the always fighting against inferiority piece. There's this vague feeling that every human soul carries with it that I'm an outsider. I don't belong. I have felt this way, especially at the CMAs as a non-musician, due to the generosity and kindness and thoughtfulness of a music industry insider, my wife Patty and I have sat in the pit of the CMAs twice. Amazing experiences. And if you watch the video, the year that Lori McKenna got Song of the Year for Girl Crush, you'll see Scott and Patty standing right behind her as she stands up to receive her reward. If you watch Carrie Underwood a year or two after that in her wedding dress uh, singing this haunting version of Softly and Tenderly, I am right in front of Carrie's face. And I can still remember how I felt in both of those moments. Even though this is a country music event, A song that's not a country song came to mind. It's a song by Radiohead called Creep. And the lyrics go, I'm a creep, I don't belong here. That's how I felt. And in response to, I'm a creep, I don't belong here, I'm thinking, look important, look like you belong here, look like a music executive because everybody knows you're not a musician. Hide it that you're a fraud. Hide it as best you can. And later on, I I kind of self-deprecatingly had this conversation with the friend who invited us. And he says, what do you mean you don't belong? You totally belong. You totally belong because I belong in there and I love you and you're my friend and you're my pastor and you matter to me and I want you to be part of every part of my world. It was some version of that. But Galatia. It's like Scott Saul's feeling like a creep who doesn't belong at an award ceremony while he's standing in the pit on somebody else's free tickets. It's a self-imposed, unnecessary anxiety system that they put themselves under. And it plays itself out especially in social ways. If you're a Gentile, you feel like an outsider because you're not Jewish enough. In fact, the architecture of the temple was set up to visibly 
communicate that Gentiles are outsiders on the periphery. It's like a wraparound porch, you know, just to appeal to your southern understanding of architecture. It's like a wrap, there was like a wraparound porch around the temple, and that was called the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go any further in than the periphery. Like the temple itself made a statement, you don't really belong. Maybe something will waft your way. Maybe you'll be able to smell the offerings as, as, as you know, the, 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 the burned animals, you know, the scent of it wafts your way. Maybe you'll be able to eavesdrop on the covenants as they're read and celebrated and sung, but you don't belong. You're in the bleachers. Count your blessings that you even get to be there. But here's Paul saying there is no Jew and there is no Gentile anymore for those who are in Christ. And then if you were a woman, if you were a female, if you were a girl, you also had this outsider syndrome. You also had this vague feeling that you were regarded as subhuman. Famous passage of scripture in John chapter 8, the woman is caught in the act of adultery. I'm personally mystified that it was only a woman that was brought out publicly and exposed as one who was caught in adultery. Because if you catch one, you're catching the other too, right? Where's the man? Well, that's how the culture was set up. You covered the men and you exposed and shamed the women. If a woman was divorced for any reason, if she'd been abandoned by her husband, she would have two options, either die of starvation or become a prostitute to support herself. But a man, if a man was displeased with his wife's cooking, if she burned his toast, this is one of the 613 laws, if she burned his toast, he could divorce her. Sounds ridiculous. And so in comes Paul, in comes Jesus. There is no more male or female hierarchy in Christ. You're all one in him. And then, of course, if you're a slave, you're going to feel subhuman because you're way at the bottom of society's pecking order. It was actually a, a, a prayer that was frequently prayed in the synagogues by the rabbis. Thank you, my God, that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a woman, and that I am not a slave. Amen. The Holy Spirit comes in and defies that pecking order. It, he does so here. He also does so in the book of Acts. <coughs> where three of the most prominent conversions in the book of Acts are Lydia, a woman, a slave girl, and a Philippian prison guard, a Gentile, rendering the rabbi's prayer null and void, rendering the rabbi's prayer ridiculous. You know, Paul says in verse 27, you have put on Christ now, and so there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Translation here is this. You are all equally important. You all have equal belonging. If you are unemployed or if you're the governor of the state of Tennessee, you have the same value in the church of God. Same value. They're always fighting inferiority, and the gospel says there's no such thing. 
in Jesus. But we're always fighting, too, for superiority. We have this feeling, right, that we want our lives to matter. I don't want to be a nobody. I don't want to be invisible. I want to be important. And that's an image of God thing. I mean, he's a great God. He's a glorious God. The very purpose of God is to be adored, glorified, and enjoyed forever. And so we've got that in us as well. And there are healthy expressions of that. And there are other expressions of that. NPR uh, has this, uh, this program called Hidden Brain. Uh, it's a podcast you can listen to. There's one episode uh, for NPR's Hidden Brain called We're All Gonna Die. We're All Gonna Die. And the featured interview in that episode is with a man whose uh, job title is Terror Management Specialist. Terror management specialist. And he's asked the question, how do people deal with the fear of death, generally speaking? And, <clears throat> and more broadly, how do people deal with the sense of vulnerability that we all feel? And the answer was this, from the expert, from the terror management specialist. People deal with their terror, with their fear, with their sense of vulnerability by trying to boost their own self-esteem. And I quote, my culture is superior, my nation is best, my religion is the most profound, I'm the best. I'm better looking than other people, I'm smarter, I'm richer. We call it, in the industry, self-esteem striving, end quote. Self-esteem striving. Takes me straight to the 18th chapter of Luke, where the religious professional, the Pharisee, probably part of the circumcision party, Praise, it says in the original Greek, to himself. Praise to himself. He mentions himself eight times and God once. Thank you, my God, that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, tax collectors, adulterers. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Self-esteem, striving, Bravado, whether religious or otherwise, is a sure indication of a person who feels vulnerable and small. And what the gospel is saying is there's no more reason ever again to feel vulnerable or small. The answer for those fighting for superiority is the same answer for those fighting against inferiority because the two are one and the same. You've put on Christ and therefore there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. What makes you important, what makes you important is that Jesus Christ has said you belong. That's what makes you important. All you got to do is take the free ticket he's giving you into the award ceremony right there in the pit to be sung over. That's the answer to the failure to thrive. So the way out of Stockholm is this word Brett used it as he was leading. I've been trying to use it here. Belonging. If you're in Christ, you belong to each other. 
and you belong to Jesus. And that's all you need, belonging. Belong to each other. It's the great thing about a local church is you don't get to choose who the members are. You know, for one split second, you choose your church when, 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 it, when you join your church. But after that, you don't get to choose who you're in community with. Somebody's personality changes. Somebody, you get closer to them and, and, and it, it appears that they are actually more difficult than you thought they were. Or you get close to them and it appears that you're more difficult to them than they thought you were. It messes your, your whole pretty little picture up. And then the people you really like move to Los Angeles. People who brought you to church in the first place move to Los Angeles or Little Rock or something. And then new people come in that don't remind you in the slightest of your friends who moved to Los Angeles or Little Rock. That's what's going on in Galatia. The circumcision party is saying, this is disruptive, is it not? All these new people, all these new people who don't share our diet, our holidays, our music, our literature, our politics, our education philosophies, our traditions. And so what do they do? They clamp down with control. Here's the law. Comply. And maybe you can belong. Maybe you can hang out in the outer courts. But Paul comes in as one who used to be like the leader, the poster child for this mindset. And then he meets Jesus Christ. He's received by Jesus Christ. He's loved by Jesus Christ. And then he's called by Jesus Christ as a lifelong Jew and rabbi, ascending rabbi, who is now called by Jesus Christ to become the messenger of Christ to them, to the Gentiles. As Brandy Kellett likes to say, Paul, his life's mission from that point forward was to expand his us. And you see through his letters, Paul developing deep friendships, not just acquaintances, but deep friendships with those that he once would have despised. <clears throat> Timothy and Titus, two young, uncircumcised men who are Gentiles. Paul takes them both under his wing, trains them up as young pastors, writes letters to each of them, personal letters to each of them that we now have in the Bible. Titus and First and Second Timothy. There is no Jew or Gentile in Christ. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And then, who does Paul look up to? Who does Paul esteem among the leaders in the first century but two Gentile women? Lydia, business owner. Phoebe, the benefactor. Because there is no male or female anymore. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And who is it that Paul writes about in his letter to a man named Philemon, whose slave Onesimus has escaped, and Paul has met him after he escapes and led him to Christ, and Paul says to Onesimus, I'm sending you back to Philemon, your owner, and Onesimus is nervous and scared. And so Paul says, I'm sending a letter ahead of you to, Ones to Onesimus, and the letter says, I'm sending you back 
your slave. But don't receive him as a slave. Don't you dare receive or treat him as a slave. Receive him as your brother. Because in Christ, there is no slave or free. You are all one. You are all equal in Christ Jesus. Christian community should be utterly surprising. The expression of Christian community should be utterly surprising to people who are observing us, who we have lunch with, who we enter into business deals with, who we celebrate, who we have parties with, who we enjoy the Super Bowl with, etc. Christian community should confound the world because Christian community is this. It's described by D.A. Carson in this way. Christians are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Suburbanites and urbanites getting really close to one another. Black and white getting really close to one another. Young and younger and older getting really close to one another. Red state and blue state people getting really close to one another in Christ. People who are fluent, people who have nothing getting really close to one another. Artists and management getting really close to one another. Death row inmates and people who have never gotten a traffic ticket getting really close to one another in Christ. Why? Because of what Jesus did. Ephesians 2, it's right there. He broke down, he eliminated, he tore apart the dividing wall of hostility between heaven and earth, between a holy God and sinful, corrupt people. And became one with those people through faith in Christ. And therefore it stands to reason that you begin to break down the dividing walls with one another. He is a depolarizing savior, which means we are meant to become depolarizing people. What a word for 2020. What a word for an election year in this climate, in this stupid climate we're in. Where everybody's not just somebody I disagree with anymore. Everybody's evil now. What an opportunity for Christians to do what the scriptures talk about, to give a gentle answer that turns away wrath, that depolarizes and restabilizes community as it's meant to be. Why? Because here we are now at, at the place where Jesus once called the ends of the earth. That's us, you guys. The United States of America is not the center of the Christian story. We're the court of the Gentiles in the Christian story. And, and, and Jesus says, I, I want you disciples to go to the ends of the earth and bring them in, all the way into the inner ring, all the way into the Holy of Holies, all the way into where the high priest alone used to be allowed to go, all the way in. We are here pledging our allegiance to a first century Middle Eastern dark-skinned Jewish man who was poor, spoke no English, was way too liberal for most conservatives and was way too conservative for most liberals. Do you like him yet? Is he the savior for you? Or do you just want control? You just want a little bit of control. I will take Jesus and all the disruption that all of this brings over control any day. Not because I don't struggle with being a controlling person, but precisely because I do. Jesus is better. He's reserved seats for you and for me in the pit at the award ceremony, free of charge, 
because you belong. What could be better than that? And to make it matters even better, there's an after party with a feast that we're all invited to right now. And so I want to invite you to stand with me as we prepare for that feast, as the kids come back in, as musicians take their place, as table servers take their place at their tables. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. How did our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.